paradigm for all uh, marriages and weddings after that. Look at verse 24. For this reason. For what reason? Because Adam and Eve were made for each other. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So Adam and Eve's experience wasn't just a little thing for Adam. It was God's plan to, to create this pattern in human relationships where people leave their families of origin, are united together, and become a new Adam a new, uh, in the society. And so families then are you know, the basic building block that God has given. And out of families then come children. And children need a mother and a father. And, and God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. So, I mean, it's all basic stuff, but I just want to highlight it, that God is the one who created this. Human beings have made many institutions. We've created educational systems. We have uh, created different forms of government. There's oligarchies and monarchies and democracies and legislative branches that are bicameral and unicameral and different ways of ordering society. We have different businesses, for-profit, not-for-profit, different types of corporations. Human beings have created lots of societal structures, but God created marriage. And it looks a little different in different societies. A wedding in uh, Taiwan might look different than a wedding in Iceland, but there's still this basic idea of marriage, and you find it in all societies and all cultures. And sometimes it's been distorted by sin to some degree or another. But there it is. It's an amazing thing. It's because when God made us, He sort of put that thing into us so that marriage becomes the basic atom for building the molecules of different social structures. That's why when marriage is degraded, when marriage is violated, it's like splitting an atom. It unleashes a destructive energy into the system. And this is why we have to treasure it, because it's a gift from God to us. Whether you're single or married, it's part of who we are, and it affects generations and children and all the people around us. So we all have an obligation to honor God and respect Him and and worship Him as our Creator by honoring this institution that He's given us. But there's a second reason why marriage is to be honored and treasured and kept as sacred, and that's this. Not only has God created marriage... But then God kind of stamped into marriage a picture of his own relationship with his people. What he wanted his relationship with his people to be like. So whether you're single or married, we can all look at marriage and we can say, ah, that's the kind of relationship God wants with his people. You know, in the Old Testament, God called himself the husband and he called Israel his wife. And when Israel worshipped other gods... God said, you're committing adultery. And when God sent Israel into exile, he says, I'm divorcing you. You know, so, so all this marriage imagery that covers the people of God and, and God himself. We found it in the New Testament. If you look over at the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, you can turn there if you want. It's on page 1159. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul takes the same imagery and he says that, The relationship between husband and wife is like the relationship between Christ and the church. So as the church is to honor Christ, so also wives should honor their husbands. And as Christ loved the church and sacrificed Himself for it, so husbands ought to lovingly sacrifice themselves for their wives. So that within, like baked into marriage, is a picture for all people in all cultures 
of what it should look like for God to relate to His people. There's a call there within marriage. In a sense, the gospel is kind of embedded within marriage. It's really an amazing thing. In fact, Paul makes the point. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Paul makes a quotation. He quotes the verse we just read in Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So Paul's saying even there in Genesis, he sees in Genesis sort of uh, behind it and silhouetted against it this other story of Christ and His church. So we need to respect and honor marriage and treasure it and hallow it, not only because it's a God-given gift that's the basic atom of our society and all societies, but because God's own glory has been embossed onto marriage. You, You see Christ in marriage. And so we need to treasure it and treat it with sanctity and reverence. So then, going back to Hebrews. That's why the author says marriage should be honored by all. Not all have to be married, but all must honor marriage and revere it for what it is. The sacred gift from God. By all. All of us together. Uh, Those of you... Those of us who are married, let's start with us. We need to honor marriage, starting with our own marriage. Let's just start there. We need to treasure our marriage. We need to be like my sister with her ring. You can take all the other stuff. Just don't take my marriage. Don't take my ring. You know, you can take my my Red Sox tickets. You can take my flat screen. You can take my wardrobe, my house, and my career. You know, I don't want you to, but if you have to, take it. Just don't touch the sanctity of this marriage. I I will fight for my marriage. I realize that next to my relationship with God, if you're married, that's the most precious gift you have. Even if, you know, your marriage is struggling, it's still a precious gift from God to you. It's to be fought for and and battled for. Um, You know, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? How much energy we put in to marriage before we're married. How much creativity, how much money, how much time is spent wooing and wowing and trying to get his attention or her attention. And then you get married and then the energy just kind of goes... It's like you woo and you woo and you woo and then you just say, whoa, I I can't (laughs) keep this up. I'm too busy. And the busyness of life and raising kids, if God gives you kids, and careers... And, and just the routine of life. I mean, life has its routines and its patterns. And we take each other for granted. I mean, you, you know the story. It's just so easy. It's so easy to get into that habit and that pattern where, where you don't treasure each other. You don't treat that marriage as something sacred. It's just kind of there. It's like a doormat. You know, you just walk across it every day. And, oh, I'm glad it's there. But you don't really think about it. And so it, I think treasuring our marriage means that no matter how old you are or how long you've been married, if you're married to continue pouring energy into the marriage. Don't just let it sit there. Pour energy into it. Um, You know, talk to each other. Value each other. Read a book on marriage. Uh, In a couple weeks, we're going to have our Sunday school in the church starting up again. Sunday school takes place right before this worship service. So if you came at 10, you could hit Sunday school, then come here. And we have a couples class. And they'll run a class for six weeks. I mean, that's an easy thing to do, to just come an hour early and 
sit in a couple's class and just think about marriage stuff for a little bit. I mean, it's not too gushy and anything like that. Just come and think about marriage. You know, put some energy into it. I know one of the things that I, I try to do that I, I think I've, uh, I just need to keep working on is just going on dates with my wife, you know? It's like you get kids and it costs money for a babysitter. Then you're like, oh, what a hassle. You don't do it. But we need to do that. You know, whenever my wife and I go on dates, we have such a fun time. I mean, it's kind of obnoxious. We, like, giggle and, you know, we just, it, it gets rekindled. And we, enjoy, we remember, like, why we got married, how much we enjoy each other. We had so much fun, I just want to say, on this this trip that the church sent us on, this mission trip to Macedonia. We went there to teach Bible in Macedonia. I'm doing a report on it in a couple of weeks. So we went there to teach the Bible and to do some training of church leaders. But one of the side benefits that came out of it that we really didn't even plan on was we just had a great week together, you know? So thank you for sending us on a date to Macedonia. Uh, <laughs> it was awesome. We had so much fun together. Even nothing else happened. It was just so good for your pastor's marriage. And I just want to thank you for that. Um, it takes energy. It takes effort. And so do we treasure our marriages? Uh, do we treat them as the, the, one of the most valuable things that we have? Do we honor them? Uh, do you know somebody who's married? Marriage should be honored by all. Do you have a friend who's married? You need to honor their marriage too. Encourage them. Cheer them on. Pray for them. Don't be one of those people who, who sort of encourages the, the marriage gripe fests. You know, the, the ladies who get together and just whine about their husbands and the guys who get together and drink beers and just badmouth their wives. It's like, don't do that. Don't be those people. And don't hang out with that because it's not going to help you. We need to be the people who are encouraging each other's marriages. And if a friend comes to you with struggles and doubts and you listen, you, you need to encourage them to keep at it as far as it depends on that person. And I understand every marriage is complex I understand that it takes two. I understand all those things. I'm just saying as far as it's your part of the equation, you know, just keep being encouraged to keep striving and trying as much as you can to make a marriage work because it's a precious thing. Even when it's hurt and dented, it's still precious. Even when the ring is tarnished or chipped, it's still precious. And we need to fight for it as much as it depends upon us. Uh, we need to be a church that encourages and supports marriages. Um, we need to be a society that supports and encourages marriages. Unfortunately, I think this is one of the kind of the gloomy things. It's just where our culture has gone with the whole issue of marriage. It's become downgraded. And we've lost a vision for the sanctity of marriage. And I, I, I'm, uh, I'm discouraged about that. I don't know where that's going to lead to. It, it can't be good. I, I don't know what the final answer is. I just know that when the atomic particle of marriage begins to break down, it eventually has an effect upon the whole system. It, it may take time. Um, I, I, think about, I think about how easy it is to have a divorce in our culture. And, and I just want to say, you know, again, I'm not going to comment on the whole issue of divorce. It's extremely complex. One thing I've learned as a pastor is that every story is different. Every story is unique. You have to listen to each story. And, and there are biblical reasons at times when a marriage can't continue because a covenant has been broken. Uh, but, but what I am saying is, I don't think our society with its legislation has helped us here. It's made divorce too easy in many ways. It's like switching from PC to Mac, you know? It's a little bit of a pain. It's going to cost you a little money, but eh, you can switch around. It's too easy. It's too simple. It's become, uh, you know, with the no-fault clauses of things. 
we have uh, downgraded marriage legislatively by creating this oxymoron of same-sex unions. You know, it's not, that's not marriage. You can call it what you want. You can have the piece of paper. You can exchange rings. It's not a marriage. It, it's just pretend. You know, marriage is, is a man and a woman before God. This is biblical. This is every human culture ever, ever, until we came along and said, well, we can change it. But, you know, marriage is not, it is not just, it's not about personal expression. It's an institution and a gift given for us by God for our good, for all of us, whether we're single or married. It's a, a blessed thing that we need to honor. And so how can we honor marriage? I guess that's the first sort of application. How can we all be a part of protecting and honoring what God has done? Even if our society is going the wrong direction. We need to be a light and a witness as a church. This is one of those areas where you can witness for Jesus without even saying a word. Just have a happy marriage. Just support others in their marriages. And you will be countercultural today in many ways. All right, let's move on. We've got to look at the other command here. Marriage should be honored by all, Hebrews 13.4. The second is the marriage bed kept pure, which, of course, is just a euphemism for uh, sexual intimacy in marriage, that, that sexual intimacy within marriage needs to be protected, that there can't be any rivals, there can't be any breaches of the exclusivity, that when a husband and wife are married, they commit to each other and they say no to everybody else. Um, and, and again, I think this is a, a, a critical word for our society because we've sort of lost our understanding of sexuality. I, I really think our culture doesn't get sex at all. You know, and I know that sounds funny because we're like totally obsessed with sex. We use it for everything from selling soap to SUVs. And, you know, since the sexual revolution, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a sport in our culture. It's kind of like a hobby, a form of entertainment. And yet, even though we're so like sex obsessed as a culture, I don't think we really even understand it. I mean, we're, we participate in it, but we don't know what it means. We don't know why it is. And so for a culture so obsessed with it, I think we're really rather clueless about the whole topic. So um, let's just talk about sex for a minute. Number one, God made it. Isn't that cool? God invented it. This is a good thing. It's not a dirty, embarrassing thing. It's a beautiful thing created by God. You know, we think it's great and all, but God's the one who thought it up. And he made it into existence and, and gave it to us as a gift. But that also means that we need to look to our creator to say, okay, what's the user manual? How is this supposed to work? And what we see from scripture is that sex was intended by God to be the, uh, the physical, tangible expression of the spiritual unity of a married couple. Does that make sense? So that as a, a couple comes together and vows and they become one flesh spiritually, so to speak, before God, they, they signify that and celebrate it and express it through sexual union. It's in that verse we studied. For this reason, remember this verse? A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. Right? In ancient cultures, uh, you were not married until you finally went and consummated the marriage. So they'd have the big festival and all the party would be there and everyone would be there. And then the couple would go into the tent. And if they didn't go in the tent, they weren't married. That was how you consummated that relationship. 
Um, or think about it this way. You know, marriage is a covenant, the Bible tells us in Malachi. The marriage is a covenant before God. And covenants in the ancient world had signs and symbols attached to them to demonstrate the reality of the covenant. Uh, think about this. Sex is like the, the covenant sign of marriage. So just as uh, when Jesus made a covenant with us, the new covenant, he gave us signs and symbols. He gave us baptism and communion. Think about it this way. Sexual intimacy is the baptism and communion of marriage. It's so sacred. It's so precious. This is why sex outside of marriage is so vile. This is why it's, it's so, God, you know, rails against it. it. It's like sex outside of marriage is like taking communion. If we load up this communion and we went to a tailgates party before a Pats game, we're like, hey, you guys want some bread? You guys want some juice? Who's thirsty? Ooh, hey, you want some? You know, and just like, it's like, no, it's communion. Don't, it's communion. It's a sacred thing that Christ has set up. The same thing with sexuality. It, it's a wonderful gift, but it's for the the expressing and the putting together of a married couple. And, and what comes out of, of sexual intimacy, in God, if God wills? Children. And what are the children? They're a blend of the father and mother. I mean, this is all basic. You guys know this. But the biology demonstrates the theology. It all fits in God's plan. It, it, it's, it's how God designed the whole thing to work for His glory. And, and so we could see who He is. And we learned so much from that basic family unit just by thinking about it, meditating upon it. <clears throat> Oftentimes, the Bible has been portrayed as being prudish when it comes to sexuality. That the Bible is repressive and regressive and Victorian and puritanical and stuffy and hung up and has issues. And if we could just be liberated like the rest of the culture, it would be a wonderful thing. Don't you see? It's just the opposite God's Word has the beautiful, exalted, lofty vision of sexuality. It's our world that has trashed it and has turned it into something perverse and, and banal and commonplace. Walking through the supermarket aisle and, you know, there's the magazines, you know, a hun, you know 10 secret bedroom tips that he, she wish you knew or, you know, whatever. It's like, it's just like a sport or something you train for. I mean, like, what is it? Instead of this beautiful thing, that God has given for His glory and for our joy if we would just honor Him with it. What has all of our sexual freedom really gotten us? How free are we really in our culture? Is it the diseases that it has helped spawn? Is it the broken marriages? Has our sexual freedom... uh, Are we happy that it's given us such emptiness and loneliness? We have more partners than ever, but... We're more lonely than ever. We're more just by ourselves. What about the illegitimate children that it spawned? Is that the benefit of the sexual freedom? The kids who are the next generation who grow up confused and hurt from these things? What about the abortions that have taken place? Not only the children lost, but what about the women who, years after the abortion, wrestle with regular crushing guilt over what they've done? And the abortion doctor didn't tell them that when they went in. I mean, this is the cost. What about the loss of innocence of our children? How could it be that the sexual liberation has created such an enormous new addiction? Sexual addiction. No. 
We need to honor marriage. We need to honor sexuality. We need to see these two as inextricably linked, as a beautiful picture of Christ and the church, whether we're married or not. And we need to understand that this is for God's glory and for all of our good to see things God's way. Whatever our society is doing, I think uh, it's an understatement to say, is not working. It's a disaster. But actually, it's even worse. If I could even say that, then it gets worse. But it does. Look back at verse 4 of Hebrews 13. Marriage should be honored by all. The marriage bed be kept pure. And here's why. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God will judge. So it's not just that these things lead to uh, a devolved society, naturally, intrinsically, but it's that God also says, I will bring my own judgment. That God judges sexual sin and, and a disregard for the marriage estate. It's a really heavy thing. He says, first of all, I will judge the adulterer. It's serious business. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, it's, it's a huge commitment to be married and to remain committed to each other. We live in a society that I think it's very easy to commit adultery today with um, pornography that kind of stir up our hearts and our minds in adulterous ways and, and illicit uh, movies and TV. It's just, you know, that, that kind of vibe is out there. You can have an illicit relationship through private email accounts and private cell phones and chats. It's easy to have secret communications with people. Um, and, and so our, our whole sort of culture kind of glamorizes it a little bit. It's sort of like, hey, is your life dull? Have you thought about an affair? Like that could really spice things up for you. That could really maybe be the solution. And so this is the message we're hearing. And so adultery is, is more commonplace and it's, it's something people treat, I think, more lightly, perhaps, than they used to. Uh, people do things like swinging, you know, where they swap partners. I mean, it's an abomination. God will judge. What about the sexually immoral? It says not only the adulterer, but all the sexually immoral. That's kind of just a, a, a bucket to catch every other kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. So sexual immorality in the Bible, that, that word, that Greek word, porneia, from which we get our word pornography, just basically kind of means all the other sex outside of marriage. Again, sexuality is for marriage, and God brings his judgment upon it. Let me show you one other verse. It's a really an amazing verse in a couple ways. It's 1 Corinthians. I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at page 1131. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. This is a really heavy verse that ends amazingly well. But it's really heavy. You just kind of have to be prepared for that. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.9. He agrees with the author of Hebrews. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there are, there's a certain category of people here called the wicked... <laughs> that are categorically excluded from eternal life. He says, do not be deceived. Okay, so don't, don't get your thinking mixed up on this. Don't buy into what our society would tell us. Ah, don't worry about it. You're okay. I'm okay. Don't be deceived. And he lists the wicked. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a pretty broad and damning list, I think. And I think we can all find ourselves there somewhere or another. And even if we think we're pure as the wind-driven snow, the words of Jesus echo in my ears, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I realize that we're in big trouble, according to this text. That we don't stand well before God. That there is a price to be paid for sin. And then you see verse 11. Look at verse 11. The Apostle says, that is what some of you were. So as Paul addresses the group in Corinth, he knows that in that group, some of them used to be wild uh, people who slept around with everybody. Some of them used to be pagan idol worshippers. He knows that in that congregation, some were adulterers. That some had same-sex attraction. That some were thieves and some were alcoholics and some gossiped about everybody and spread slander. Some were swindlers. He's like, that's who you were. And so it kind of raises an interesting dilemma. I just thought you said, Paul, that those people are out. And net you're saying, I know some of you are those and you're in. So how did the people who are wicked and cannot inherit the kingdom of God suddenly be the people that Paul says, that's what you were. What happened? Look at verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That means to be made holy. You were justified. That means to be acquitted in the court of God's law. And you are you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we look at our lives and what our moral behavior should earn us, we are in huge trouble. There is no way we could ever make ourselves right with God. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. What we could never do for ourselves God did by sending His own Son, Jesus, and His blood shed on the cross can wash away all of our sins. I wonder about our own church here. I bet many of us could stand and tell stories if, if we <laughs> felt so bold. Some of us could say, yes, I'm an adulterer. Some of us could say, yes, I've been sexually immoral. Some of us could say, yes, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Some of us could say, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Some of us could say, yes, I have lied and gossiped and thieved. That's what I once was. What an awesome gift to be able to say, I have been washed. I have been washed. And the blood of Jesus cleanses all unrighteousness. He can wash it all away. And no matter who you are, no matter who I am, no matter what our sordid past may be, no matter how vile and embarrassing perhaps where we've been is. Maybe you're, maybe you're just amazed you're like in church. Like I can't believe the big piece of the ceiling hasn't fallen on my head to crush me. Because if everyone knew where I've been, what I've done, how I've failed, then they wouldn't even let me in here. You know what? God knows exactly 
who you are and what you've, where you've been. And yet, the blood of Jesus can wash you clean. But you've got to come to Him. You've got to confess your sin. And you've got to cry out to Him. What a great text for communion, huh? Here we come to celebrate the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can wash me clean in God's eyes. So we come now to the Lord's Supper. And this is a a symbol. It is a memorial reminding us of what Christ has done for us. It's the center of our faith. This bread we're going to eat in a minute symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken. This cup we drink symbolizes the blood that was shed on the cross for us. And as we take it together, we are, we are celebrating 